Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 20th, 2021, and my guest is author Lamorna Ash. She is the author of Dark Salt Clear, The Life of a Fishing Town. I want to thank Plantronics for providing today's guest with the Plantronics 5220 headset. Lamorna, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you so much for having me. This is a beautiful, evocative, eloquently written book. It's the story of your time in a Cornish fishing village in the southwest corner of England in the town of Newland. How long were you there? And um, did you go there with a plan of what you wanted to experience while being there? And why'd you go? So I went there twice and the first time was for a month. And the first time I went there, it was purely for academic purposes. So I was doing, I was 22 and I was doing a master's in anthropology, uh, which was not a subject I'd studied before. And the best part about doing anthropology was that your dissertation was based on fieldwork. So you actually got to go and have lived experience and get to know people. And I had a million different grand ideas about where I wanted to go. I wanted to travel the world, go to a rainforest, because so much of anthropology uh, monographs do discuss that kind of thing. But then there's the real problem, which is something that anthropologists talk about now, which is a, a language problem. So if I were to go to another country and then ask them to translate into English, that would be already such a block between what I was understanding about them and their reality. And I went to Cornwall, where I go a lot, because it's where my mother's from. And my friend was saying, he was like, well, why don't you come here? I mean, there's so much interesting stuff to write about, about Cornwall. And I thought, oh my God, yeah, I hadn't thought about somewhere close to home. So I packed my bags and I went for a month to find out the way that uh, fishing intersect with, intersected with community or how fishing shaped community in this fishing port town called Newlyn. So that was the first trip. And then... And then I came back and I was incredibly moved by my experience of being there. Um, I'm a city kid. I grew up in London and I hadn't seen the way that community could be so tight and close and so connected to an industry. Um, I made incredible friends there, even just within that month. And it felt in a, in a way, I felt like I was in the midst of a coming of age novel. I felt it felt kind of transformative. And I got back and I was writing for a literary magazine called the Times Literary Supplement. And the editor at the time, Sir Gable, was brilliant and that he always let young writers just have a go and write articles. And he said, you said you were on a trawler for about five days. You should write about that. And I thought, oh my God, brilliant, because I'd written this diary whilst I was on board the trawler and had so many strange notes um, that I wanted to pull together. And so I wrote this piece about about being on a trawler um, and weaved in quite a bit of literature that I've been reading whilst I was on the trawler. And it just so happened, I was very lucky that a publisher happened to read this piece and he invited me into his office and said, uh, do you want to write a book about fishing? And I was shocked and kind of thought, how on earth do you write a book? And then I spent the next like three years trying to work out how to write a book. And I still obviously have no coherent answers or like uh, definitive answers about that. But it was the most extraordinary process of going back to this place. And having said, I'm here just for academic reasons to come back and say, actually, 
I'm about to write a book this time. And the way that shifted the relationships I had with some of the people I was writing about, because it suddenly became something that would become a public artifact rather than something that a few people in my university would read. Um, and it was, it was difficult. And I think I really struggled whilst returning of thinking, you know, this is going to be maybe for a lot of people. And how do I tell these stories truthfully and honestly and without uh, taking advantage of them at all? A, a trawler is a fishing boat. That That's what you spent five days on. Um, yes. Was that the, uh, didn't you spend longer on the Philadelphia? Yeah. So the first trawler I went on was uh, only for five days, which felt like a really long time only. at the time. <laughs> yeah. Only for, yeah. In, in relation. Um, but that was, that was also a very smart boat um, that uh, skippered by fishermen from St. Ives, which is another port town in Cornwall that is thought to be a bit more uppity and a bit more posh compared to this other port town. And I was, I had my own like mini cabin. Um, there was Wi-Fi on board. It was very deluxe as trawlers go. I mean, it's still stank of fish, but it's pretty deluxe. <laughs> and then I, I came back and I thought, actually, I really think that I need to go on a trawler again because it's such a fundamental part of being a fisherman. And so many fishermen cut their teeth by being a trawlerman. So I asked um, a friend from the pub, Don, if I could go on his trawler. And I really, I got what I wanted in terms of it being as authentic and Cornish and rough uh, a fishing experience as you can have with four guys and we all shared uh, we had bunks together all alongside one another and it had no wi-fi and it was it was built in 1969 so it was this very old rusting hulk of of a machine to ride out on the season by smart you don't mean like smart and smartphone you mean like that's a british term for like fancy and 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 pleasant posh. correct yeah posh. yeah 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 so exactly. so the philadelphia is a more of a working uh um exotic <laughs> old school uh trawler uh now you structured you structure the book around that trip um did you say how long it was that was eight days seven nights eight days and seven nights sharing a bunk with with four people um and hauling in fish constantly it felt like um so give us the flavor you were not a journalist uh, only on that trip. You were a working member of that team. Talk about how what happens when the Derek on the boat, the crane, pulls up a net load of fish and what happens to those fish from that moment going forward. Okay. So there's a phrase that fishermen say, which is keep the gear wet, never miss a toe. So there's this sense in fishing that when you're a trawler, you're the the derricks, which is yeah, sort of almost like big cranes, and they underneath them the nets travel and they travel right along the bottom of the sea. So they're really pulling up kind of any fish that's there um, and they get stuck in inside the net. Um so anytime the trawler is in motion, those nets are scraping along and then at the moment so after about three hours when they've been down they're pulled up and kind of hoisted onto the deck and then the fishermen on this boat every boat has its own idiosyncrasies and some of them are more modern than others but on the philadelphia you have to get inside the net pretty much and open up the cod end which is the net that holds the net in place the Sorry, cod the, end is, right the cod end which is the rope that holds the net in place closed and then once that opens all these fish cascade on top of the fishermen and then down onto the onto the deck 
And then the fishermen get out big buckets for each species of fish. And they spend about 30 minutes on their knees, tossing fish into the particular baskets, throwing um, small sharks back into the sea and any fish that they don't have quota for, meaning that they're not allowed to catch or that um, there isn't a market for anyway. So then once the fish are all collected up, they're pulled to the back of the deck. And this is again, this process is happening on a very slippery deck where in bigger waves you're sliding from one side to the other. And then you gut the fish at that moment. So um, there's this long uh, silver table, kind of like an operating table. And each person has their knife and they go through each of the different types of fish and they pull out the guts from them. Uh, Part of my what I find so useful about having come to write a book from trying to be an anthropologist first was that I'd learned things about things like phenomenology. So this idea that like by practicing, by actually being an active participant with the thing you're trying to learn about, you're going to have so much of a better understanding than if you're just passively observing. Uh, plus also the other side of things was wanting to prove my worth, wanting not to just be a passenger on this boat, but wanting to help And also I'd have been bored if I didn't do this. So I said immediately, got my boots on um, and my oil skins and said, can I help as well? And I was given a very small, very blunt knife, which I think was a sign of them recognizing in me perhaps a very clumsy, um, chaotic looking person. And I was slowly taught over the week how to gut each type of fish. And I have in my diary all these little hand-drawn notes of where to make the incision uh, on different kinds of fish and how to kind of bleed them out in different ways. So we'd spend maybe an hour chatting away, laughing on the deck, pulling out these fish guts, chucking the fish then back into the boxes then we'd climb down into um, a really icy area in the belly of the boat called the fish room, uh, where they have this massive hunk of ice that they would hack off each day. And you layer the fish in boxes with the ice. So by the end of the week, this once empty room suddenly has all these skyscrapers of fish in boxes. And I'd always end up climbing on top of the different boxes and then managing to put the fish box on the top. So over the course of the week, that became a much more difficult task. Um, but it was also quite extraordinary to see, like, itemized how many fish we'd caught, seeing these sort of top towers of fish. And you acquired a nickname um, by the end of the trip. Tell us what that nickname was and why you got it. <laughs> So a lot of the fishermen do have nicknames in, in Cornwall. So one of the people I lived with, who is the most incredible man, is a guy called Lofty. And he's called Lofty because he's very tall. Someone called Cod, not because he catches lots of cod, but because he once went to Cape Cod and came back with a jumper saying Cape Cod. That's a, um, a sweatshirt or a sweater, right? A sweatshirt. Yeah. 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 I forget about some of these language right. things. Um, and yeah, so I was, I was really interested in the fact that all the fishermen had nicknames and I was quite jealous as well. Uh, and the fish that I found, and it was such a double of both being like amazed and enjoying gutting this particular fish, but also horrified because for some reason to me, it seemed the most human of the fish was, um, the rays. And there were like three different kinds of rays and most of them get exported to Japan because people in England don't eat ray at all really. Um, and they're so massive and they have these quite strange human lips that kind of pucker um, and these big wings and as you're trying to gut it it's like trying to close its wings in on you as a sort of defense mechanism and it was I don't know it's really hard to put myself in the feeling of it now because it I feel so um, urban at the moment but I would end up being told to stab this ray in the heart. And I think the fisherman watched my kind of gleeful look and thought it was quite amusing. And they started calling me Ray Mundo. 
And I was so chuffed to have acquired a fishing nickname that I think I called myself Raymundo more than they called me Raymundo. I wanted it to stick. It hasn't stuck. <laughs> well, it's a relief of some, perhaps, your mom. Yeah. Um, you said you were chuffed, right? That means excited. Yeah. Yeah. Pleased, thrilled. Yeah. Um, so I, I was struck. Uh, I don't know if this is generally true, but I was struck by how manual the work on the boat was. Uh, in terms of the gutting and the st- storing and the free, you know, the hacking off pieces of ice, I feel like on some fishing uh, boats, some of that's more, I don't know, uh, more of an assembly line and less hand done. But basically, this is all, this is no different than when I've gone fishing and we bring back seven fish and the guy cleans them at the, the, the mate cleans them at the end of the trip with a knife. There's nothing automated about it. Um, it's not a freezer room. It's just an ice room. Uh, I love that name, the fish room. It's, Mm. there's nothing subtle about it. Um, (laughs) how many fish are we talking about here in a typical haul? Is there a a, a number you might want to give us? Is it, is it, it's dozens, hundreds? Lots more than that. Hundreds, hundreds of fish. Um, and so, yeah, no, a huge amount of fish each time. And, And some of those, um, are unfortunately being sort of thrown over as waste if it's more fish than they're allowed of a particular species. Um, but I think the number that kind of blew me away was that so the, the week I was on that trawler, they made 45 grand in that week. Um, so it's like a huge amount of money, actually. And that was a particularly good trip. Um, but it was, it was a lot more than I was expecting. Uh, let's talk about your skill set. Uh, when you started, it must have been... I mean, if somebody ha- – I've cleaned a few fish in my time, not many, but a, a few, and you've probably eaten a fish before or not. Maybe – I don't know. But the first <laughs> yeah. time you took a knife to a fish with time pressure, it's not like, you know, I'll just clean a few. I assume there's a lot of eagerness to move quickly because in three hours, another haul is coming or six hours? How often – how many hauls yeah, a three, day? Three hours. So, I mean, I guess uh, – so how many is that a day? Like seven? Seven. Well, you got to sleep. Yeah. So. Well, you do, but actually, the fishermen don't have normal sleeping patterns. So, uh, someone will be off each each haul, and that uh, means that they'll get slightly longer sleep then. But they continue all through the night. It doesn't stop at nighttime at all. You just have the floodlights on. Wow. It really is that sense of like you. Whilst you're out there, you are just trying to make as much money as you possibly can. There's like a real urgency to it. Um, part of that is because when you come back to land, you never know what storms are going to come up. If there's going to be a problem with the boat, so it really is whilst you're out there, make the most of it. So um, at, at night, and you talk about this a little bit, but. Talk about the in the book, but talk, tell us about what it's like to be on the sea at night, dark. If you're lucky, maybe there's stars to add some romance to it. But uh, the boat's moving. <laughs> it's not, and it's not just moving forward. It's side to side, and sometimes it's, the waves are larger than others. And what was that like? I actually don't think I've ever slept better than I have on a trawler. And that's partly to do with, at the beginning of a trip, I often take quite intense seasick medication because my biggest fear actually going out to sea was that I would get really sick, which sometimes happens. And then the men would have to take me back in and I'd feel like an idiot. And I'd also think a lot about how much money they would have lost because of me. So I think I was very nervous about that. Um, So when you're on the seasick medication, I tend to, I find it really hard to wake up and I actually think you're basically lying in this coughing, coffin-like cabin in your sleeping bag 
usually I wouldn't change out of my clothes because I'd be exhausted. So I just, everything stunk. And by that point, it doesn't matter because you all smell the same. You barely notice. Um, but I actually would fall asleep immediately and would find it so hard to wake. And I had this sense of sometimes wake up in the night and, and feeling again this, this embarrassment that actually the men were still working and they were having just a couple of hours sleep whilst I was getting this whole night's sleep. So I tried, I got better and better at trying to wake up at some of the hours that they were. So that I was also again participating. But definitely, and I looked at this maybe through an anthropo anthropological lens of the fact that uh, different moods spring up on the boat, both at different times and in different spaces. So at nighttime, there was maybe like the humor was darker or certainly things felt more mystical because it would just be these floodlights and the way that it lit up the whites of the fish, um, the, so the white bellies of the fish. Uh, and it did, it just felt, it felt more dramatic um, and more like you really were in absolutely in the middle of nowhere. And then during the daytime, we, you know, we'd be watching some of the news and it, it felt like we were more uh, in sync with the time occurring back on shore. Yeah. Uh, I have a friend who who's a listener uh, to this program generally who grew up, his family owned an egg farm, a place where, farm, I don't know if it's the right word, an egg processing plant where, where eggs were collected and put into cartons. And I went and visited him there. And of course, the first thing you notice is the overwhelming smell of sulfur and egg. And I said, boy, it, you know, it, it smells strong here. Uh, and he said, what are you talking about? <laughs> he, he, yeah. uh, he, he didn't smell it. So I'm sure after a while, the, um, the smell on uh, board was kind of standard, uh, and everybody had the same smell. You had a lot of guts in your hair, your clothes. You write about that. It's kind of, um, somewhat, somewhat challenging, I suppose at first, but I assume you do, you do get used to it. I actually kind of indulged in it. I really liked the fact that I didn't have to think about my appearance and that like I wasn't showering at all really and barely brushing my teeth. I got I got quite into it. Um and then I did. There was one very small, quite uh broken mirror and I looked at myself about halfway through the trip and truly didn't recognise the person who did have all these unspecified guts in her hair and sort of flecks of cuttlefish juice all over me. Um and then when I got back, uh I I I found it really strange going back onto the land, but I was lucky that the couple that I've been staying with, they've been watching my boat um, on, there's a system called the AIS system that looks, you, you can spot where all the boats are and see when they're coming back into harbour. And families of fishermen often will watch those quite obsessively whilst they're out and then come down onto, uh, onto the harbour walls when they're returning. And I saw this couple and I was really moved because they did feel a bit like family whilst I was there. And I got off the boat and went to hug them. And they were like, oh, God, no, you smell so bad. You can have a shower and then we'll hug you. Yeah, that, that was Lofty and Denise, right? That was Lofty and yeah. Denise, yeah. Uh, now, it's interesting because you write about it and it's a, you know, it's a classic trope in fishing villages that the people on land would go up to a high point and watch for the ship coming over the curve of the horizon. And now we've got technology to make that uh, a little less, um, it's just different, right? Mm, but it must yeah. be it must be comforting uh, to be able to see the boat on the on the screen and to know that it's, you know, it's okay. And yeah, I think definitely. Um, I think a lot of fishermen, uh, 
well when they can't fish for instance so you said earlier about the fact that it's very manual a lot of fishermen have um a lot of injuries there's like things can go wrong quite a lot um there's uh even just like repeated stress um injuries and when they're hauled up at home they'll often watch their boats going out at sea and spend all their time on the AIS system as well just to kind of any way to stay connected to what's going out on the water yeah it's um kind of like the injured athlete watching the game on uh <laughs> Sort yeah. of, sort of. Um, you mentioned seasickness. One of the most fascinating things in the book uh, was this idea that I'd never heard of, that seasickness is more psychological than physical. It mm. depends on what you call, quote, the relationship to the world you left behind. Talk about that and, and how you you strategized in, in trying to minimize the risk of you being having to be taken home. Well, it's, this is definitely not a scientifically proven thing, but I loved so many of the stories I was told by fishermen uh, that some of them, you can feel that maybe they're half fabricating it as well, but they're still, they're so well told. But a fisherman called Kyle, who was on the trawler with me, who was the only other fisherman in his 20s, he was exactly the same age as me, I think, um, but definitely seemed a lot older because he'd been working full time since he was 16. And he said that when him and his cousin had first started going fishing together uh, on a big trawler, both of them were kind of jumping about the deck and they didn't get at all seasick. And a lot of the older men did get seasick, particularly in those rougher days, which sometimes happen in big sort of uh, force eight gales or something like that. And as soon as his cousin had a child, he started becoming seasick. So Kyle's hypothesis was that seasickness is related to the way you're thinking about the land, like your conception of the land. So the more things that you have that tie you to the land, then the more seasick you become because it's almost like your body rejecting being at sea. And I, obviously, I don't think that that's something you can prove, but certainly it must shift your relationship with the sea a lot more when you're young and you don't really care and it's just an exciting adventure. So I, I haven't got badly seasick at all. I just sort of threw up a couple of times one day and then I'm pretty much done with it, which is okay as it goes. Some people have had a lot worse. Um, and I wondered if that was also because at this point in my life, I have less things that do tie me to the land as well. Um, yeah. That's so cool. Um, yeah, I don't care if it's true or not. I just I like, good, the, I like the poetry of it. Um, there's There's no alcohol on the boat, correct? No, they call it either C-Hab or C-Tox. C-Hab? As opposed to rehab. So C-Hab or C-Tox <laughs> detox. Um, there's, there's a lot of drink on the land. Yes, and there is. Definitely, yeah. Um, there's in, it's a very small town. It's, I don't actually know how many people it is, but in the thousands, like the single digit thousands. Um, but there's four to five pubs in that small stretch of town. Um, and they've all got different purposes. One pub seems to be for the older people. One pub is for the youngsters. One pub is for the tourists. Uh, one pub is for the fishermen. And the fishermen's pub is called the Swordfish or the Swordy. And as soon as the men are on land, meaning still in their wellies, they'll go straight into the Swordy to have a few pints. So there is this... Um, uh, not a very healthy balance between absolute, um, uh, what do you call it? Not, not absolutely not drinking. That's the one. Absolute abstinence at sea and then a huge amount of drinking when you get back on land with uh, your pay packet. Your pay packet. Now, you were worried about seasickness. Were you worried about your ability to hold your liquor on land in those pubs? Because you did a reasonable amount of, um, of drinking alongside your, <laughs> your mates. 
Yeah, I actually, I feel grateful to those times to teach, for teaching me how to be a better drinker. I definitely got my tolerance up. I also had just finished university. So I suppose I'd just come out at the time when you're drinking maybe the most in your life anyway. Um, but I, it was, it was pints only. And I would sit down often to interview fishermen in the pubs because where else? And I'd have my recorder. Um, and I think they found it quite funny that they'd I'd have to match them. So each time they get a pint, they get me a pint. I'd be like, oh God. And when Denise was in the pub, I'd often hand her the beers so that she could drink them instead of me. Um, so I'd, but I did notice that sometimes I'd go back, I'd be doing my transcriptions of these interviews and I'd make less and less sense and be asking, sort of like, why do you guys fish by about 10 p.m. in the pub, which is not good. It's not very good journalistic practice for sure. I just want to alert readers who might be interested in this book that although Lamorna has invoked the word anthropology. There's nothing um, academic about the book. It is a <laughs> uh, a very evocative portrait of the town, its people, uh, her experiences. Uh, it's jargon-free. Just want to reassure people. Uh, yeah. Did you want to say something? I was going to say that um, it, I found that such a freeing process because my I think anthropology is like one of the most jargony subjects in terms of like a mixture of sort of philosophy and like really kind of technical philosophy and, and kind of new terms and on things about ontologies. And it felt really nice to be able to strip all those down. But it also, even though they, that doesn't exist within the book, it was kind of amazing to have had this um, almost like skeletal structure of anthropology to start with and then to lose all that. And my, more naturally anyway, I, I've done sort of like playwriting and fiction. So it made more sense to write in that style for me. When you were interviewing people, um, they knew you were writing a book. Some of them must have been excited because they think they thought, I'll be in a book. Others must have thought, I don't want to be part of that. I don't want my name used. So how did you handle that? And then how? what kind of reaction have you gotten from your friends in the town as when the books come out? I think this is the most important thing. And it's something I still do a fair amount of kind of journalism and nonfiction writing. And it feels such an important thing to navigate is to make sure that people are so conscious of what's happening with the things that you're writing about them to make sure to keep checking you can't check in too many times about consent with that kind of thing um definitely some fishermen particularly hearing i have like a very posh london accent were immediately thinking here's another person who's going to come to this town and paint a stereotypical portrait of us and then leave again so there was real resistance there'd been another book that i actually haven't read um called the swordfish and the star that was vaguely about newland written a couple of years before mine um and it paints which is definitely possible to do a portrait of newland as um there's quite a lot of illicit activity. Uh, they can come across as some of them as like really rough guys with these wild stories, some of which aren't true. <laughs> and I think that's what that guy went to get uh, as as a journalist. And that's the story that he got. And a lot of the fishermen are really against it. And I don't necessarily think that means that many of them have read it, but certainly... They've heard about it. They've heard about it. And in the way that, say, as a community, they'll vote almost as a group politically, if someone has said this thing is bad, they all are like, okay, we've heard this book is really bad. And if this guy comes back to our town, we're going to throw him over the harbour walls. Jokingly, maybe half. But I got told that as well a lot about, you know, this book that had, that had got them wrong. So I think in some ways that was quite a good like um, thing for me to be conscious of not wanting to do. Um and quite a lot of the fishermen were so happy to talk and, and are used to sharing their lives in this way because fishing definitely in Britain is something that is, it's 
always garnered a lot of interest um, from people who don't live in that area. And there's sort of myriad documentaries about uh, fishing lives and going out to sea and what what that's like. Um, so I think people were comfortable with, with that. And then my other thing that I had a real uh, fortunate thing was that I lived with this couple who were incredible incredible and were very much at the center of the town so everyone knew Denise and Lofty uh Denise worked in the fishmongers and Lofty worked in Savitech which is uh, they sell things like rope and uh, life jackets and that kind of thing and we got on so well and there was a lot of trust between us and it meant that I often got access to people I probably wouldn't have otherwise because Denise or Lofty would say this is Lamorna she's writing about this she lives with us she's all right um so that was amazing for me because that that just doesn't happen otherwise um and then in terms of the feedback from the fishermen, I've been really lucky in that a lot of them have really enjoyed the book. Um, Don, who's the skipper, the trawler, who's sort of, he's, he's kind of a hero uh, on the Philadelphia, definitely. He said he hasn't read it, but he's very happy that he's acknowledged in it. Um, and he said that his daughter says that he's the hero of the book. So I think he's chuffed about, always pleased about that. Um, and then, uh, yeah, I'll, now and then I'll get a message from someone in the town who is a fisherman who'll say, I think you've got our lives you know, write, which is as a writer, often you think about who are you writing for? And that's something you're asked as a young writer to think about. And I was writing for that town. So when I hear from them that they think I did them justice, that's kind of like, that's all the praise I could ask for, really. We th- I, I tend to think of fishermen as, um, the word I would use is laconic, um, taciturn. Uh, these are all good SAT words here in the United States. Um <laughs> Uh, strong silent type would be another way to describe it. But a lot of them, of course, to use a bad phrase, spill their guts, uh, told you things about themselves uh, and opened up to you, which um, was must have been interesting and, and required a sense of trust on your part and their part that some of the things you told them, I'm sure, didn't make it into the book for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but they, they did... Um, we do get a portrait of their, of their lives and of their. I'd say even more importantly, of their identities. And I, I want you to talk about. You mentioned that a fisherman might get injured and follow the boat that he, he regularly is on on AIS, this navigation uh, system. There's something much more point. That's that's fascinating. But there's a more poignant story in in the book, runs through the book of these fishermen who, they get old, and it's a physical experience you can't do it for your whole life and they're forced to retire they you know they hurt their leg their hip whatever it is their back and now they're on land and they can't really tear themselves away from the fishing industry so they're not fishing anymore that very specific set of skills of using a knife and hauling up the ropes and tying knots and all those things are gone they can't use those anymore but instead of trying something new they stay in the world that they know at least talk about you know, what that, that experience was like and what you observed about that. Mm. Well, I think because fishing is not just your job at all by, by any stretch of the imagination, because your parents might have been fishermen as well. Um, you started doing it, say, when you were 16. You spend as much time at sea as you do on land. It means that it's like a really significant part of your identity. It's how you see yourself. It's how other people see you. Your relationships are based on the fact that you are gone for a week at a time. Uh, some wives would say that they really notice when if the boat is having repairs, 
but it's actually hellish to have your husband there for two weeks because they're just lying on the sofa and they're a stay-at-home dad when they're used to this constant oscillation cycle. between yeah they have a cycle between being there and not being there um so definitely the the older fishermen for loads of reasons i think one thing as well is that when you're on land all the time that temptation of the pub, there's a, there is like a lot of alcohol addiction, is stronger um, because that's the place you go to associate with fishermen. It's like an extension of of the boat in some ways. So a lot of guys get quite lost under that, under drinking. Um, also, it's your whole conversation. Everyone in every cafe and every pub is talking about the industry. And if you're on the boat, that means you're at the centre of that conversation. And it's really hard to lose that. And I think also, you know, it's it, fishing is not a career that uh, transfers over to many. It's not a skill that is shared with many other industries. So I think for a lot of the men who have this real sense of being quite a, uh, an important member of the community, then to suddenly work in Tesco's or whatever would would feel like uh, I don't know, like maybe it they'd feel like that they'd lost some sort of uh, degree of of standing or upstanding. Not explaining this very well. No, they they lose some of their status. Yeah, and and a sense of identity. Tesco's is a food store or department store. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, Tesco's is That's like right. a Seven Eleven. Yeah. Like so, um, so at one point you'd quote someone, which I, you know, very poignant, who's still doing something in the industry, or actually, it was a someone who fishes who who doesn't quote like it. Um, I think if you think about fishing in the abstract. It's easy to romanticize if you think about it in the reality, which you do in the book in the book a great deal. Describe the reality of it. It's it's pretty hard. <laughs> it, it, there's this besides the physical work and the the sleep patterns and the challenge of 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 that weird surreal world of being out at sea. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no connection to home. And then all of a sudden you're back at home. Uh, and trying to deal with that, you're back seeing your children. You're back seeing your wife, and it's a man's world. So it's Usually, you're back seeing your wife. Um, that's it's a hard world, and and one of them was saying one of the people you quoted said, "Well, well, it's horrible. I don't like it." And you said, "Like, well, why don't you do something else?" And he said, "What else would I do?" Right? Mm-hmm. And it just um, just talk about that feeling. Yeah, I think it it is that sense where you get stuck within it, um, and I think that particular fisherman. His story is even more interesting uh, and complicated in that his father um, had been lost at sea uh, in a boat called the Margareta Maria and all that they never found the boat and he had been planning to quit the industry and he always told his son Nathan, the father, yeah, he always told his son Nathan that you're not to play by the shore. I don't want you becoming a fisherman. I don't want you sort of sliding into this industry that is hard and difficult and uncertain and precarious. Um, And then after he died, Nathan then ended up being a fisherman. He ended up skippering a boat, so he was in charge of a trawler. And I, I was asking him, you know, what is that like? You know, what, how can you go out and face the same sea every single day that you know is is the thing that led to your father's death? And he was in this way. You were saying iconic, but I, I wonder if it's there's a philosophical outlook to a lot of the fishermen as well because they do spend so much time sitting, staring at the sea in the middle of nowhere, and that definitely affects the way you think about the world. And he said, you know, um, I had to check that my, my dad wasn't behind the, the horizon or something stupid like that, and he immediately dismissed it. But I thought that's such an extraordinary thing to say that like there is this sense of supernatural there or. Maybe he's following in your father's footsteps and therefore getting to stay close to him. So I think it's such a kind of 
push and pull of, of wanting to be part of this and, and knowing it's beautiful and you can have these extraordinary moments out there and it, and it gives you identity, but also that it is very hard and that you won't see your kids very often and it might put strains on your relationship. And there are a lot of fishermen who get divorced um, and whose, whose children are kind of resentful of the fact that they, they never see their father. So I think that there, there's, there's so many complexities and I couldn't kind of come up with an eventual understanding of exactly why all fishermen become fishermen um, or why they tussle with what it means to be a fisherman. But there are just so many different aspects of it. I found that very powerful. You know, I lost my father about um, a year ago, and the idea of of staying close to your father or a parent by re-experiencing their experiences is is just incredibly poignant. Um, and um, just sad and beautiful and everything at once. Uh, the other part of the book that is striking to me. So that first part that we just talked about is the sense of self and the way one's work infuses your identity, which most of us have some piece of it in our lives. Like I'm sure you see yourself as a writer uh, and that has certain impacts on how you go through the day. Um, but a fisherman, it's just it's just different. It's 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 more pervasive, at least in a certain in a, it's you can't avoid it. Because it just it's there all the time, and you're when you're home, you can see the sea. It's not like you know uh, the work life balance is inevitably um, uh, psychologically rich that way. But also the other part of your book, which of course is profound, is the sense of place. And I wanted to read a, a quote um, from one of the people you you write about. Her name was Pat. She at seventeen. I think it was during the war, World War II, her father passes away in a terrible accident in his own bar. Uh, he's the owner of the Fisherman's Arms. A drunk hits him and he falls badly and he, he snaps his spinal cord and he dies. It's just an incredible tragedy. So this 17-year-old girl and her mom inherit this uh, pub. And sweet footnote that you write about the women in the town, their men are off at war. They start coming to the pub for socializing, which is really beautiful. But um, she stays there. She ends up spending the rest of her life in this little town uh, and has run this pub for a long, long time. And she gets known as the Duchess of Newland. Uh, and her name is Pat. You write the following about her, and, and it's really beautiful. Pat has been all the way around the world on her cruises, but she always comes back to Newland in the end, to the cottage where her mother died, next door to the pub she grew up in. I ask her if she's ever thought about moving, about living somewhere else for a while, maybe where her parents came from. You tell me, she says, what more could you want than this place? The Duchess of Newland looks out over the harbor. I see the sun come up there, and then the moon climbs out from the sea there each night. I see the men head out through there and then steam back in with their fish each evening. What more could I want? Of course, you're a London girl, um, London woman. Uh, you could think of a lot of things that you could want other than watching the fish <laughs> fishermen come in and out. And the sun and the moon are beautiful, but, you know, there's a lot to life that's not in Newland. And yet for her, what more could you want? And mm -hmm. it felt like a lot of people are tied to place um, in a way that most many of us in the modern world, especially highly educated people, are not. I thought about Chris Arnotti, Gaston Econ Talk, in his book Dignity. He writes about front row and back back row 
chill kit people. So the front row people or the kids who sit in the front of the class, they're ambitious. Mm -hmm. They want to move on. They, they, they want to achieve. They want to go to the best graduate school. They want to go to the best job they can get. They don't care whether they're close to their parents or not because they're going to forge their own identity. And I'm, I was one of those people. I was, I was born in Memphis, Tennessee, spent a year there. My brother and sister both went back there, even though they never they weren't born there, never lived there and as as children, but went back as adults because my parents are from there and we have connections there. So I don't have that sense of home. I lived all over the place and it doesn't bother me because I don't know what I'm missing. But for these folks, and in Chris's case, you know, Chris is a front row person. He goes and gets a physics degree. Uh, the back row people stay in Florida in the many of the poorer towns that they grew up in. And certainly in, in the places that Chris surveys in his book in West Virginia and other parts of America that have not proceeded in terms of economic growth the way the rest of the, say, the urban areas have, they stay in these places. And people say, well, why don't you move? And we talk a lot in this program about reasons that people might not move because of public policy that makes it hard to find mm -hmm. an apartment in an urban area that's got restrictions on building and the jobs might, they don't have the skill set. They maybe got a lousy education. And it's hard for them to find work in those places. But the other part is, which is hard for us front row people to remember, is that they like living there. They like being where their parents grew up. They like growing up next to the, staying in the house they grew up in or near it and, and seeing their mom often. And so I just think that's, that portrait of life is something that I think educated people are unaware of. They find Brexit and populism around the world inexplicable because they we who are more globally oriented don't have that sense of place but mm -hmm. your book captures that sense of place pat's not the only example i think most a lot of people are torn some of the younger people you write about are unsure whether they want to come back or not they come back sporadically but others just stay they do what their parents did they become fishermen they work in the industry and Having gone through this experience as an educated person thrown back into that world, what are your thoughts on the role place plays in, in say, their lives versus your life? Mm, that's so interesting. And I think just giving it a spatial idea of front row and back row, it feels really useful for me to think about that because that's something I think about a lot. Um, oh, there's so many parts of it. I think maybe if I start with myself and I, I have actually always lived pretty much in London. Um, but for some reason to me, that didn't feel like a place. Like I didn't feel like it meant anything to say I came from London because it's built, I mean, I guess like someone says somewhere like New York or it, it's built of so many different kinds of people. There's so many different parts to it. And only now do I actually kind of understand that my identity is so closely linked to being from London, but I somehow failed to see that. And I also had that young person thing, again, a front row thing of wanting to go everywhere and tie myself to lots of different places and so when I went to Newlyn I was age 22 feeling very dislocated and feeling like I didn't have a sense of self and I thought okay well my mum's from Cornwall and in London I use the fact that I'm a bit Cornish as a kind of grounding thing that differentiates me from other children so I thought okay I'm going to go to Cornwall and that's and then I'm going to stay there and that's going to be where I'm from and the part of the book really is the kind of gradual realization that you can't force a place to be yours. You can't just go somewhere and say, this is going to be me now. Um, and I know that this is something that in Britain, like 
I know America is definitely class-based as well, but in terms of things like accent in the UK, it's so you can work out so quickly if someone is middle or upper class or, or working class. So the fact that I'm I'm posh, I'm like middle upper class, was immediately obvious, and I was always going to stick out from the people in Newlyn. And to begin with, I was really kind of devastated that I couldn't make this place mine. And then I sort of realised that actually. I, like I, you can make a place to your friend and you can try and understand it. And that's like an amazing end goal rather than trying to force yourself into somewhere else. Um, there's a lot of gentrification in Cornwall. There's young people don't tend to move there. Young people go to cities, but a lot of people in their fifties and sixties sort of post-retirement move to Cornwall. So they're not adding anything to the economy, but they are making those, they're shifting the way those areas work because suddenly it costs a lot more to, to live in these places and the posh coffee shops and whole food style places will come in as well and push out uh, other other businesses. Um, so there's a town next to Newland or a village next to Newland called Mausel. And in Mausel, it used to it's be... It's spelled Mousehole for those of yeah. you keeping score at home, but it's pronounced Mausel. Okay. Yeah, yeah, like Mausel. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, when I, oh yeah, so that used to be another fishing port, a smaller one. But again, everyone who lived there worked in the industry. And slowly, slowly people were being pushed out because it was, it was becoming so expensive. Um, and now every single cottage there is pretty much empty during the winter times because they're all holiday homes they're all airbnbs or whatever um and one fisherman was telling me that his his parents when they moved out of there his dad couldn't speak for about a month because he had had to sell to a london holiday maker and he was so devastated that he was complicit in a way because he had he had to be part of this system and there was no way out of it so i think it's interesting that like other people have this impulse to say this is beautiful i'd like to make it my home but without a recognition of like, by going somewhere, you're ultimately always going to be changing it. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why a lot of people in Cornwall feel really angry and hostile towards those in cities as well, because there is no, there's no mutual looking after one another. There's often resentment in Cornwall about the cities, uh, about particularly London, where that's where all of the politics happens. And often it, what's the decisions that are being made there aren't benefiting those in smaller coastal places. There's also hostility towards cities and there's a kind of xenophobia about, um, I'd often be told, you know, London sounds horrible. It sounds so busy and smelly. And, um, you know, there's people from all over the world there. And I'd, to begin with, I, I, I think I found it hard to express my opinion about it. And then when I went back, which I, I do go back quite often, obviously not now because of the pandemic, but previous to that, I would make sure I was louder in saying that actually probably what I love about London most is the fact that like it's very diverse that in my area, a place called Haringey, it's a Turkish community and it means that like you can learn about Turkish politics whilst living there and it's exciting to feel that it's built up so many different parts and that that somehow works. Um, and I think so part of, of the strange thing about place in Cornwall is also like it's about trying to retain the place as it is and there's there's less room for different uh, political stances um, sometimes. Sometimes that's not the case. I, I, often if people actually move there, they, people can be really accepting. But I think it's a lot of that is sort of tangled up within it about, about identity. Um, sure. But I think I struggled. Probably one of the reasons that I left was that I think I did feel and that, um, that maybe that I would get bored if if I stayed somewhere that small and I'd get frustrated that 
all my neighbors were right next to me and there was sort of no escape and there was no anonymity at all. Whereas I think for a lot of the young people who stay there, that's that's part of the, the pleasure of it. And that's not um, a fear of looking elsewhere. That's like how amazing to have some kind of stability in an unstable world and to be with all the people I love and have always loved and to get to be there for the rest of my life. Well, I think about the movie, uh, It's a Wonderful Life, which I'm a sucker for. I've probably seen it eight, eight or ten times. I have a good cry every time and know a lot of it by heart, of course. Um, but It's a Wonderful Life is a <clears throat> is a very romantic vision of small-town life. And it leaves out the fact that everybody knows your business. It's true. Everyone will take care of you, but they also know your business. Uh, not much changes. And there's a trade-off and a tension that, that I've thought about a lot as an economist Uh Creative destruction, uh, technological change, all these things that lead to a higher standard of living, international trade, also affect your sense of self, your sense of place. It's disruptive. Uh, I've spent most of my writing talking about the upside of that because I think the upside is often hard to see. The downside is mm-hmm. very visible. But we shouldn't forget the downside either. And and I think there's – um it's easy to romanticize small town life, but it's also important not to forget what is deeply human, I think, and 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 comforting for some people. Nairobi's the same, by the way. Some mm-hmm. people feel very differently about these these trade-offs between, say, economic opportunity and uh, a feeling of place that doesn't change, that is eternal. And some of your book in the background, I would call it, is is about this fact that Newland is it's doing pretty well. But it's also kind of dying because that industry, young people, not as many young people want to be fishermen. We talked about the ones who want to do what their what their father did, but a lot of them don't. They want to leave and they mm-hmm. want to go to the big city and they want more ex- to explore other things. And there's a tension there that I think economists have ignored for a long time. Um, this one has. And I, you know, I've been forced to think about it because of the political consequences that those uh, changes have wrought. Uh, and that's that's also you know part of what what you're writing about you know it, so I think it's um, not a simple thing. I think there's a lot going on there, and I think it's important to keep a rich and nuanced vision of of what of what those trade offs are. Mm, definitely, um, I think a lot of the people I met who are my age, I, I guess you know the amazing benefits of education is that like a lot of people would go to universities that were in other parts of the country, yeah. but that does mean that suddenly you have this this debt you've accrued and this qualification you've got and you need to do something with that. And there really aren't places to do that, particularly in Newland, which is right at the end of Cornwall, so the very sort of toe bit of the UK. Um, and and there, I think there's then that real wrenching feeling of being like, you know, I want to be providing for my family and I want to be enriching the place that I've come from, but how do I do that? Um, one of my close friends from Cornwall, who I, I write about a bit in the book, called uh, he's called Isaac, and his dad's a fisherman, his granddad's a fisherman, and he studied English literature at Oxford and is an incredible writer. Um, and I think his family were like, okay, amazing, we've now got this, we've got this writer in our family. He's going to make millions because uh, uh, he studied English, and you know, <laughs> English doesn't really make you any money, unfortunately. Yeah, they don't know but, much about writing, I guess. Yeah, exactly. But he then came back home, and they were, and a lot of people in the village were like, "What are you doing back here? You know, you're meant to be in the big city making money now." Um, and I think he really struggled with that of like what to do with all this kind of knowledge that he'd accrued, and he's now 
he's gone back to Newland after traveling all over the place actually to become a secondary school teacher and I think the school that he went to when he was a child as well so you know, there, there are ways that you can kind of come back and, and use those things you're learning but I think it's a it's difficult for a lot of people in that sense of often you know we're told it's this narrative of that as you grow up you have to move away that's part of maturation um and then that does mean that yeah sometimes places are left of like if the industry is the only thing they've got is fishing um and tourism that's a really hard thing to depend on and there's so many other factors that that make that a difficult thing and yeah this this sense of um like the capitalization of fishing the fact that now there's massive companies that own a lot of quota and it means that it is harder as a young guy to go into that industry and it's going to change what that space looks like when actually a lot of the fishermen for instance are from european countries like so very eastern european like latvia or are thai and the way that they work is they'll come to England for six months and be a fisherman for those six months, uh, basically living on the boat. And then they'll go back home with that money to the, their country of origin. So that means that they're not like participating in community, even if they're, they're participating in the economy. And so it means that as there's less people who are living in the area where they're fishing, that's also going to affect what, what that town looks like as well. Yeah. And I think, I think the, at the individual level, there's a tension between using one's gifts, which often requires moving, and staying close to people you love or people who raised you or the place that you grew up in. And as I said, many of us walk away from that, and uh, something's lost there, uh, something's gained. But I think there is a um, there's a tension. I, I think a lot about um, Sebastian Junger's book Tribe. When he describes the people who were captured, kidnapped often in war by uh, Native Americans in, in combat, and they're slaves or hostages, were prisoners, and then after a while they're integrated into the community that they're in. They marry a, mm -hmm. a Native American woman, and they get rescued. Sometimes they don't want to leave, <laughs> and and the people who are rescuing them are like, you know, what's wrong with you? This how can you, this is so primitive and it is primitive relative to, in terms of certain dimensions In other mm -hmm. dimensions, it's de deeply advanced not because of that sense of community that is so missing, I think in modern life in, in many ways. So, uh, you know, the other thing I think about is, is the musical come from away, which is about <laughs> an insular community that is forced to accept a bunch of strangers and because their culture is helping because <laughs> that's what you do in a small town. You help everybody who's there and you write about that beautifully um, in, a, in a chapter. So, you know, in, in Come From Away, in this town of Gander, thousands of people are descend on it on 9-11 because American airspace has been closed and they land in Nova Scotia and this town has to deal with it. And they mm -hmm. deal with it magnificently in a way that, might be challenging for other locations, but the sense of place is so strong. And, you know, there's this tension between the uh, the self and the other, right? So often in those places of, of strong physical identity, they have trouble dealing with the other. You know, they're asking you, well, how, you know, all those different kinds of people. And, and yet the power of that when there's a crisis is extraordinary. And there's nothing mm -hmm. that we, you know, there's hardly anything like it. Um, 
you know, wartime does that, obviously. Wartime, we rally behind or we have historically behind a sense of national identity. National identity is can be really destructive. When it's self-preservation, it's pretty powerful. So anyway, all these issues are are, are in your book, and uh, in, you write about them in very thoughtful ways. Do you want to say anything in response to that? Yeah, well, it just made me think. Um, one of my really close friends is studying uh, political economy at the moment, uh, doing a master's. And she, I've just been like proofreading an essay she was writing about integration uh, versus segregation and this sense of like in America areas that are say predominantly poor and maybe like often like black community areas versus the richer white areas in places like Chicago and often there's projects that are like physical integration where people from the poor communities are moved into these these richer areas because we know that segregation uh, can have a negative impact but then then that's often on the terms of the privileged people that, that like that then you have to get moved and you have to um change yourself to become like this other this other kind of person who society says are living in a way that that's better um and she writes about the fact that like what does integration look like if it's not spatial if it is just understanding other communities better so that doesn't necessitate an actual movement but like how can you make sure that people have shared values or at least awareness of other people's values um whilst being spatially apart. And I thought that was such a, an interesting thought of like how, how it is that, you know, how do we make it so that London is more aware of, of the shifts that are happening in Cornwall um, and how Cornwall can feel more aware of like the kind of benefits of, of, kind of in, integration or, or of just multiculturalism in London. And I just think it's, it's a cool thing that writing can do sometimes is to, to show those different worlds um, without forcing them together. That's a beautiful thought. The, the challenge, of course, is that they're different worlds. And the challenge I think we have in modern times, I think the challenge of 2021 and so many places around the world is that our national narratives have become, uh, they've diverged. And there's a group of people who have one set, of, one narrative. It, it doesn't, doesn't interweave very well, doesn't intertwine with that other narrative the way it feels like it used to. Uh, so that, you know, I had Michael Blaslin on the program recently who was talking about Somebody in a relatively rural area was being told that that Brexit would be a mistake because uh, it would hurt uh, GDP. And she said, well, it'll hurt your bloody GDP, not mine. And, you know, that's a modern, somewhat modern phenomenon. I think it's exaggerated, this idea that that we have divergent economic paths uh, from economic change. But there's some truth to it, too. And um, I, I think that is really the modern challenge right now for cultural cohesion that we don't have, mm -hmm. how are we going to overcome that, those different narratives and the other, those differences. And I think the other piece of this is that the attempt to force integration uh, from the top down is, is a very unhelpful way to solve the problem because mm -hmm. all of our connections physically, emotionally, work-wise come from the bottom up. They're emergent. They're not, and the reason that's important isn't because, oh, well, top down's often, you know, doesn't work well and bottom up's better. The reason it's important is that bottom up change, when people choose to move or choose to change careers, there's a whole bunch of other stuff that comes along the way or that has to be there in place to make that imaginable. And if you try to just take one piece of it and shove it into the rest of the puzzle, it doesn't integrate well. And that's not very well said, mm -hmm. but it, it, it's hard to, um, 
to think about that. But I think I think it's an important lesson in economics. The mistake that gets made is that, well, markets use prices, so we'll use prices from the top down. We'll just incentivize things, the right things and the things that are better. And they forget that markets don't just use prices. They have other things that go with them, norms, habits. And, and to impose just the price part often is very ineffective and destructive. Mm. That's so interesting. I don't think I'd, I'd really thought about that. I was, I was wondering how that, thinking about that in, in terms of fishing, but I'm not sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, one of the things that's interesting, I, I wanted to talk about this, is that you talked about the, you mentioned a couple of times the quota. And fishing mm. quotas are a way to keep avoid to avoid the tragedy of the commons the incentive that people have to overfish to yeah. keep smaller fish because if you throw it back uh you're not going to be the one that catches it so you may as well keep it and 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 get some economic benefit from it and that incentive system those feedback loops can lead to incredibly destructive things and so a top-down solution there's very can be very effective there are bottom-up solutions uh in smaller communities the norms develop about not overfishing. And what I found, and and then get enforced through not just norms, but through people saying, hey, that you know that person took too many fish. I'm going to burn his house down. An extreme <laughs> example, but the threat of that is not trivial. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, they'll sink your boat uh, if, you, if you violate the norms. But now we've typically used law legislation, more accurately, uh, rather than the law of norms, the legislation of you have this amount of quota, and if you overfish that, you're fined. But what I found interesting about your book is the feeling on the part of many of the younger fishermen that that sustainability and not overfishing is a a value that they've embraced, even though it may not be incentivized for themselves. They understand that if everyone acts selfishly, they'll destroy this way of life. Mm. Do you think that's a realistic uh, effect? Do you think it's it's plausible that that will help sustain it, that that norm, that feeling of responsibility? Or do you think that's just them just talking to you and feeling, you know, uh, virtuous? Yeah, I mean, it's so it's so hard to tell. And I'm sure it also the other side of the things is my bias of wanting to hear that as well. So yeah. when, when fish, as soon as fishermen say that, I'm like, yeah, oh, my God, because sometimes I found it really hard with some of the older fishermen that they cared so little about sustainability. And from like the kind of small level things of just like throwing their rubbish bins over the side of the boat into the water. And you're thinking this is this is the environment you work in. Like, I don't understand how you can care so little and like still doing sort of like um uh kind of like catching blackfish. So um kind of like uh, uh, illegally secretly catching more than you're meant to and finding ways around it which still, which still fishermen do. And I kind of understand that if you think things are unfair, then why would you act within it, within like the legal system that someone else is from far away has told you you have yeah. to act within which your grandparents didn't have to act in or which seems to benefit other uh, societies more say for instance if they think that in Spain and France uh, that legislation is or like those laws are maintained less so they can get away with it so we should try and get away with it as well so I found that difficult and kind of hard because I definitely have an idealism to me in most things and I wanted to write a book that was showing um, fishermen in a kind light or at least an honest light and so sometimes I'm like oh this is, this is a shame that you guys think in this way and so then when I was meeting younger fishermen it was really exciting to be firstly 
uh, environmentally because a lot of them are small boat fishermen, meaning that they they go out just in a, for a day and they're very small boats and they have like minimal environmental impact because they just can't catch that much. It's, it's impossible. It's it's not commercial fishing really. Um, and they are also often they're backed by people who are interested in the environment. Um, they might they might be part of uh, seafood who are kind of like a training company who also sort of help to instill some of these values in their fishermen. And also they might be frustrated in the way that loads of us are with our parents or grandparents about the way that, you know, there's that sense... I find it interesting because I'm now part of the problem because I'm an adult. But I always think that you know teenagers spend so much time saying, "Look what you've done to the world, the adults! Like, you've ruined this world for us." And then suddenly you hit 21 and you're an adult, so you're you're part of that problem. But I found it interesting that the younger fishermen kind of did feel because it's impossible to avoid now thinking about the environment and thinking about, say, in fishing, you notice environmental change or climate change through the fact that fish that were never normally caught in British waters because they they're warmer water fish are now being caught there. So they know like this is obvious that this stuff is happening, and that then they do want to respond to it. And I think I hope that will be a longer lasting change because it is just harder to shy away from any of those huge global concerns for our generation. I think. Well, we'll, we'll see. Um, I think it's there's some obvious things that can make the world a better place easily. Um, some are more complicated. You know, we were talking about economic change. You know, I've spent a, a decent part of my side of this conversation talking about the, the downside and acknowledging it. I, I want to say something about the upside. And when you're talking about fishing and smaller boats, it reminds me of, of farming uh, and, and the move towards the people that want to start farming in smaller farms and, and doing less corporate, urge, an urge for less corporate influence on farming and I certainly think in America we've subsidized farming at the corporate level, which is a horrible mistake. I'd zero that out any if I could. But there is a transformation that took place over the 20th century in America. In 1900, 40% of the population worked on in agriculture. Now it's about two and a half. And that changed the country in a, a myriad of ways. But the truth is, I think most farmers are happy that their great-grandchildren the, the farmers of 1900 are probably pretty happy with the lives that their great-grandchildren lead, most of them, not all of them, of course. And I don't think we should forget that. I don't think we want a world, I don't know, there's no we, but if you think of a world with lots of small fishermen having less impact on the environment and on the fish populations, you're in a world where fish are a lot more expensive to eat, uh, where you might have to vote a lot more land or energy to other things to keep people alive. Um, and for me, most importantly, you might lose the opportunity to use your gifts in areas that aren't related to fishing and farming, which are not necessarily what everybody wants to do to get up in the morning and slop the hogs or get seasick and miss your kids. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of downsides. I, I just wanted to add that as a, a non-romantic note that should be kept in mind. Yeah, no, I think I think that's so true. And I think that's just, it, it kind of emphasizes the, the kind of tangle of difficulties within that, that like you know, each small shift that you do make, there's going to be negative and positive outcomes. And I think it's so hard because because things like how they'll vote as a community that like often it 
seems arbitrary the things that fishermen decide. So like with Brexit, that basically every fisherman in the country voted for Brexit um, to get their waters back. And there was like a really simplistic argument behind that, which UKIP, uh, uh, which Nigel Farage's party kind of came in and said, you will get all the water back. There will be no boats, no other European boats. <laughs> yeah, which is also so strange, this idea of like owning, like our waters is such an odd concept. Um, but then that like very... Um, what's I don't understand. That, that basically allowed them to to forget about the fact that say seventy percent of fish from the UK is exported, like a lot of that to EU countries. <laughs> so then, so kind of that sense of each thing you do, like okay, if you shut off all those those borders and mean that 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 um, European boats can't come and can't come and fish here, then obviously the tariffs will become higher there. And and it, yeah, it's just it's so naughty, and I guess that's part of why it's. It's so difficult when the public are told, okay, you're going to get to vote on this, when we are thinking kind of selfishly or just in terms of the small community around us or whatever we understand as the people close to us. Yeah, it's so difficult. Yeah, you said it was a naughty problem. That's with a K, right? Yeah. But it's also a naughty problem. It's naughty and, <laughs> and naughty. Um, just, your title, uh, it's an unusual title for a book. Uh, dark Salt Clear. It comes from a poem by Elizabeth Bishop. And if all goes well, we're going to have an upcoming episode that touches on Elizabeth Bishop in a funny way. Um, you like her poetry. Why did you choose that title? What's it mean to you? Um, I love her poetry. I found choosing a title the hardest thing in the whole world. I had no idea that that would be maybe like the worst part of writing a book oh, is hard. trying, yeah, trying to find something that maybe encapsulates it or gives a sense of it in a couple of words. Um, and while I was writing, I was living in a really horrible flat at the time in London. Um, and I had the front room overlooking a big, busy main road and it was really badly insulated and it was really noisy. And I'd lie there tossing and turning, unable to sleep, desperately trying to think of words to do with the sea that could be my title. And I'd go sort of, you know, control F and look through my book and see if I could find a good line in there. Just I type in blue or C and be like, oh God, what do I say? Um, and when I went down to stay in Cornwall for the second time, one of my close friends, Andrew, who was doing a PhD on Elizabeth Bishop, um, gave me a book of her collected poems and said that, you know, the C mattered so much to her, whether she was in Brazil or in, in America. Um, I think this might be useful for you. And I, I read it a lot whilst I was in Newlyn and I continue, I have it actually beside me uh, on my bookshelf, um, her collected works. And the poem at the fish houses is one of my favourite and that's where the line comes from. And she's describing what she thinks the sea is and how the sea is like knowledge. And she says it's, um, oh, I'm going to get it wrong now, but um, it's how she imagines knowledge to be dark, salt, clear, moving, utterly free. And this, I just thought that was really beautiful because I don't know, even just like the fact that there's tension between dark and clear um, made me think about the fact that in my book, there is a sort of similar sense. I'm trying to give a, a kind of complicated portrait of a place. And there's a lot of poetry in the book as well. There's a lot of the literature that I was interested in. Um, I am still trying to understand the kind of writer I want to be. And I do that through reading uh, a lot. And I wanted to put some of that writing in. So there's you know, works by John Steinbeck I talk about. I talk about Virginia Woolf a lot, who used to go to Cornwall every holiday like I did as a child. Um, and so it made sense to have a kind of literary title for the, for the book, um, you know, rather than something really so sort of simple, simple about like, you know, this is about a girl on a trawler. I wanted it to, to be a bit a bit more poetic. A girl on a trawler is not a bad title, but... Oh, no, it's my um, my publisher <laughs> wants to call it Trawler Girl. Oh, and gosh. I just, well, yeah, it just sounds like a 
terrible superhero, but it also positions me at the centre of the book, which I didn't really want either. Um, yeah. And I'm a woman, so yeah, yeah I I know that one. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, titles are tricky, uh, and publishers have really unusual ideas about what the book should be called compared to often what the author wants. I've noticed. Um, yeah. Let's close with what you've learned about yourself from this time there. Uh, some of it's in the book, of course, and some of it will unspool as as your life goes forward. But uh, try to summarize as best you can uh, that unanswerable question. What do you feel mm-hmm. was, um, you know, I, there were, uh, let me say it a different way. There were authors who say, well, it was great. I got a book out of it, which I totally get. <laughs> it's totally mm-hmm. understandable. But uh, I'm, I'm more interested in your inner life. Is it still with you now, now there in London? Big, big time. Um, I think it's not the same as saying, well, I got a book out of it, but maybe it's along those lines. But um, that faith in, I've always, as a kid, I always wanted to make writing my life um, and to have been able to turn something into a book, um, which came out this year, so I was 25. It, it has given me confidence to keep saying, you can do this. You can go to places and you can try really hard to understand people. And there's, the, there's a possibility that you can make that your life. So I think it's given me, I hold on to it when I'm really struggling with writing, which happens all the time, that you've done that once, you can do it again. Um, and then I think the kind of big thing I've taken from it is just like, I guess, the value of listening and listening slowly and carefully and for a long time. Um, and that it, it really means something to get to go somewhere and just sit for a while and hear what other people think and to try and transform that into writing. Um, like uh, different things recently, I've been writing about all sorts about, I wrote a big piece about um, people who do anger management classes. And then I've been writing a piece about someone who's gone back into drug dealing during the pandemic because uh, he didn't get any government help and it was like the only industry he could find himself in. And these are things that could be sort of sensational topics like anger and uh, drug dealing. And then if you sit with someone for four days and you understand their background, how they got into these things or what their experience of anger is like, you can just build a much more nuanced portrait. And so I think in Newland, I learned maybe how to listen. Um, I'm sure I'm still rubbish at listening sometimes, but definitely it's something that I see the value in so much and want to keep practicing. But what about in terms of what you heard while you were listening? Is there a, any lasting effect you think from that that time mm-hmm. there? God, so much of it was. I think, oh, okay, maybe the thing that I learned most from anything in Cornwall was the time I spent with Lofton and Nice, which was actually about something not so fishing, but it was just about how to love people well and how to share space together. So what I learned from Denise and Lofty was actually while sitting, watching TV, having our dinners on, on trays was that like they, their love isn't about, and maybe this is about back row, front row kids again, that it's not about the biggest things that you can share and how intelligent you are and having to constantly tell everyone about that. It's about, uh, the way you treat each other and the small jokes and the nonsense, boring conversations you have together and how that can sometimes be the best, the best foundation parts of a relationship. And I think I'd come from uh, this big university and sort of thought that everything was about knowledge and everything was about intellect. And it was really amazing to realize it wasn't. And that actually those small jokes and those little conversations are the best ones. I guess that has been Lamorna Ash. Her book is Dark Salt Clear. Morna, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Thank you so much. It's been so interesting. And to hear more about the economic side of things as well, it's been really useful. Thank you. Great.
This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.